a story in its purest form is somebody saying, this happened, and that led to this next thing. This person did this, and then they did this, and then this happened, and then they did this. This happened blank, then this blank, then this blank. And the power of the anecdote is, is so great. It has a momentum in and of itself. And then you wouldn't believe it, but blank. How to frame it as something that's universal or about an idea that's going to be interesting to you or about a question that you've always had. And the reason that is interesting every single person walking the face of the earth is blank. So that you have that feeling of like, whoa, this is about me or this is about the world in a way that I hadn't thought about before. I'm Jessica Abel, and we're going Out on the Wire, the show about making stories step by step. I love to talk about how all storytelling uses the same tools, and it does, essentially. But obviously, there are also endless ways to actually tell stories, and I mean, how boring it would be if not. One of the biggest, most obvious differences is that some stories are true, and we have to stick to the facts that actually happened, and some stories are invented. Some, of course, fall somewhere in the middle. This time around, we're going to talk about a couple of approaches for structuring stories. One is more helpful for fiction writers, and the other, perhaps, for nonfiction. We've also got a fascinating interview with Jonathan Mitchell, the producer of the podcast The Truth, where he and his team make fiction that updates the tradition of classic radio drama with a distinctly modern ear for story and soundscape. And at the end of the show, we've got a new challenge for you that will keep you moving forward with your story. So come on, let's get out on that wire. This is episode four, Bare Bones. Them bones, them bones, them dry bones, now they're the working of the Lord. Chapter one, is that your final answer? Here's a little secret for you. My super producer, Benjamin Frisch, is working on an epic tale of elven adventure. I'm working on an epic fantasy series um, called Forest Lords. Well! (laughs) And um, Forest Lords is, you know, it's going to be ten volumes about elves in the forest. I've already got a website. You know, I'm working on the the uh, massive uh, online role-playing game. But he does not have a clue how to get started. Who is the protagonist of Forest Lords? Um, His name is um, uh, Greenleaf Barksley. (laughs) (laughs) And Greenleaf Barksley, what does he want? You know, he's just like a normal guy. Okay, this is my chance to get meta, because that's what we do around here. This is where I'm scheduled to tell you that narrative arc is an essential tool. And, you know, sketch out the parts and how it works. But I have had a hell of a time figuring out how to show you that this actually should matter to you at all. Writing this episode was an incredible slog. And I think that's because I didn't start out with an XY story formula. Never mind a focus sentence. We're talking... I'm doing a story about basic elements of story structure. And it's interesting because... Well, because it's interesting. I like it. I would slap me right out of storytelling class if I came in with that bullshit. Or how about... It's interesting because no matter what kind of story you tell, if you've got chronology and some surprises, you can make it better. Except I don't have surprises. 
or... It's interesting because as much as I claim that all these story tools are universal, I can think of a million ways that these rules do not apply. Except that is not interesting. That is annoying. It's interesting because seriously, stories that don't have some kind of structure built in before you're too deep, they will eat you alive. You'll be drowning. Having something you can grab onto, like a narrative arc or an XY story formula, that will save you in those dark moments. It will be your lighthouse in the storm. I'm telling you because I know. Even writing something short and simple can take you down for ages. Take this episode as an object lesson. I went into it with a vague idea of what I wanted to do, but without a plan. And I spent two weeks, weeks I cannot afford, flailing on this thing. I mean, seriously, will I never learn? Okay, starting over. I'm making a story about essential narrative tools, the narrative arc, chronology, and framing. And what's interesting about it is these tools can feel abstract and artificial at the outset. They can feel like you're minimizing what's really good about your work, but they are your beacon in the storm. They will save you when you're most lost. So let's go back to narrative structure basics. What does Greenleaf Barksley want? Why can't he just be like a cool, awesome dude who's just cool and doesn't have any problems? Like, I don't... Well, he can be, but then he does not make protagonist great. Protagonists have to want something. Why? Because if protagonists don't want something, then they don't act. If you don't want anything, you don't do anything. Your life has got to be really freaking interesting for me to want to watch it day in and day out. You know, for me to just want to watch how you're living. The protagonist's motivation is potential energy. That's the because in the focus sentence. A cool dude who's just hanging out lacks motivation. And if you've got a protagonist without motivation, you better be doing something pretty unusual. But if there's no desire in there, if there's no desire, nothing somebody, nothing that character is moving towards, there's nothing for me to emotionally invest in. There's nothing for me to to hook onto empathetically and say, I hope Greenleaf is going to make it one day. Last episode, I told you, without a lot of backup, that characters are cogs in your story machine. What story machine, you might well ask? That machine is called the narrative arc. And the way those cogs mesh with the other elements is all about motivation. And that brings us straight back to the focus sentence. Someone does something because, but. A successful focus sentence is the most basic, bare-bones version of your narrative arc. You've got a motivated character that's on some kind of journey, and the journey is set off by an event, some kind of change of circumstances. That's what the but in the focus sentence points to. That's what I call a spark. As in, that's where the fire in the story comes from. It's what you may have heard called an inciting incident. Before the spark, no matter how motivated and pent up, the character is at the train station, just waiting. Okay, okay, so um, he's looking for the golden leaf of the legendary elf tree. And he needs the golden leaf, he wants the golden leaf because his mother is dying and it's the only way that he can save her because it's also the golden leaf is medicine okay that works 
Okay. So he wants something, and he wants something for some deep emotional reason because he loves his mother, right? Yeah. So you have just plotted your entire epic. You might remember seeing a chart in your high school textbook that maps the narrative arc. At the bottom left is a point. That's where the character starts. And then there's a spark, and that sends the character up a diagonal line from left to right. That's your rising action. It hits a high point, your climax, and then the line falls down steeply to the bottom right. That's your resolution. Or if you're fancy, or French, your denouement. I wrote a whole chapter about the narrative arc in my book, Drawing Words and Writing Pictures. And I drew my own narrative arc, which I'll include in the show notes. Everything that happens in a traditional character-based narrative can be mapped more or less to this sort of structure. And it seems so simple, right? Like, it's just an isosceles triangle. But actually figuring out the pieces you need to make a narrative arc with rising action that functions and a satisfying climax, that's the art of writing a compelling story. And it's way more complicated in reality than it looks in that neat little chart. You have just plotted your entire epic. How? I I don't understand. How so? Page one, we establish how much Greenleaf loves his mother. Mm -hmm. The only necessary backstory to get the story rolling. Mm-hmm. Is that he loves his mother? But what about like I've I've worked out all this stuff about elf culture and all the you'll leaves. You'll fit that, that in later. And... It'll fit in later. Believe me, you'll get to it. It'll happen. But it's trust me. I've, trust. I've got I've got binders of lore. Trust the system. So page one, we learn how much Greenleaf loves his mother, and he really, really loves his mother. And not only that, she's probably somebody who's very wise and important to the entire elf clan, right? Uh huh. She is a necessary person, not only for him to feel emotionally whole, but also for his entire village to continue functioning. Perhaps they're in the middle of some kind of crisis and her knowledge is necessary. So, page two, she's hit by a magic spell, falls ill, and somebody tells him, or she tells him, the only way that she's going to get better is by getting the the golden leaf. Mm -hmm. Uh, Perhaps she forbids him from going because it's too dangerous. So he has to decide whether he's going to disobey his mother and go save her life by going on this dangerous quest, or he's going to obey his mother and let her die and perhaps see the end of his entire village. The next ingredient you need is stakes. The stakes are why all this matters to the characters. In the case of Greenleaf Barksley, elf protagonist, the stakes are that he loves his mother and that she's a wise old elf whose experience is needed to survive the onslaught of the orcs or something. So he needs to do this thing in order to save her and everyone he knows. If he needed the golden leaf for something mundane, like, I don't know, removing stubborn stains from his elf tunic, why would he bother to risk this dangerous journey? Why would he care? And if he doesn't care, why should we care? But in this story, it's way heavier than that. Greenleaf's got to choose between risking his own life or letting his mother and his entire village die. Hmm, that sounds like a dilemma. That is the definition of a dilemma. A dilemma is a situation in which a character has to decide something, but neither decision is easy. And that is the ideal kind of thing you want to have at the very beginning of an epic tale of elf lore. Okay, so we've got the beginning now, but you know now he's going to go on all these adventures to sort of find the golden leaf. It's going to be tough to just sit down today and outline all the adventures that old Greenleaf Barksley will have to go through to get that golden leaf. I mean, you've got to do it eventually. But in the meantime, put aside the middle section of your story, because if you've set up the beginning properly, you already know a whole lot about one other essential piece of the story. The climax. 
but you do know what the book ends with. Do I? Yeah, you do. Can you tell me? It ends with him either getting the leaf and bringing it back to his mother in time for her to stay alive, or he fails and she dies. Basically, the spark at the beginning of the story sets up a question. It sets up what the protagonist wants, what he's fighting for throughout the work. And the question is, will the protagonist get what she wants? Can Greenleaf Barksley save his mother and his village? Is Nomi Malone going to become a top showgirl? Will the thing ever get turned back into a human being? Will Trishnu Pinju ever become Roller Girl of Mars? What does the character want? And what stands in his way? That's it. That's the secret. Period. The climax of the story is the final challenge the protagonist must face, where we get the answer to the core question set up by the motivation plus the spark. In the end, they either succeed or fail to resolve the basic question that set the story rolling in the first place. In the story we talked about from the Transom Workshop in Episode 2, Jessica Kittum's One Acre. Farming uh, on Martha's Vineyard is really difficult because land is so expensive. The question is, will young Lily make it as a farmer on Martha's Vineyard, or will she fail? That's the natural end of the story. Of course, like most journalistic stories, this story is a snapshot of a life being lived, and we don't have the luxury of a final answer to that question. But that's what's animating our interest in the story. We want to know, will she make it or not? Chapter 2. What's gonna happen? Can you remember back to the beginning of this show? I barely can. I recorded episode 1 in the summer, August I think, and today it's raining and the sun came up at like 8am. Back then, I was clear about one thing, a fact that I think has faded in and out of view for me as well as for listeners. I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. I am way out on the wire, just like you are. And I say that not to be self-deprecating, but to emphasize that I'm learning from the process of investigating and explaining. My ideas are evolving as we roll here, and a lot of it is down to what you're telling me. You know how I keep talking about how great our Out on the Wire working group is? After episode two, where I asked participants to try a focus sentence and an XY story formula, a whole bunch of people did. But it quickly became apparent that I'd given you one other tool that I'd severely undervalued and even tossed off as a joke the Soren. So maybe my sentence would be, this happened blank, then this blank, then the, this blank, and then you wouldn't believe it, but blank. And the reason that is interesting to every single person walking the face of the earth is blank. <laughs> <laughs> In the workshop episode, 2.5, we talked about one of the stories that proved this point. I called up the author to ask her about her graphic novel in progress, Taking Turns, Stories from Unit 371. I'm M.K. Serwick. M.K. is almost done with her book. But still, her first attempt at an XY story formula didn't get close to showing us why we should be desperately checking her website for news on the pub date. I'm doing a story about a new nurse on an AIDS care unit in the 1990s, and it's interesting because she becomes an artist along the way. Then she tried again. I'm doing a story about a new nurse on an AIDS care unit in the 1990s, and it's interesting because she struggles with appropriate boundaries, has a needle stick, and, as a way to cope, becomes a visual artist along the way. Better, but still no cigar. And so I suggested she try Soren. 
Remember, MK is almost done with her book. She has an advantage in that she's already got the chronology and the arc written, but that doesn't mean she knows why she's been working so hard all this time. MK's dad died while she was in nursing school. Then she went into AIDS care so patients wouldn't remind her of him. Then she started painting wooden boards to memorialize her dead patients. Then she became friends with a patient who was an artist, a painter, then you wouldn't effing believe it, but she had an accidental needle stick while caring for him. The reason that this story is important to every single person walking the face of the earth is because we all deal with loving and losing those around us, and we are all taking turns being sick, and there's no real divide between a patient and a caregiver, and it turns out art can help us. As the poet Marie Howe said, art can hold it. That is just so good. But she felt she couldn't have gotten there without having tried a couple of XY story formulas first. You know, I do think it was definitely a stepwise process because, you know, it's like opening the door and then the focus pries the door open a little more. And, you know, you asked what I was thinking. It made me dig deeper and find the essence. And then the third one took that then to the next level. So it felt very much to me stepwise. Why are you putting this out into the world and not just making it for your own enjoyment? That's the question you need to answer for yourself. The Soren really helped me pull together why it was important. And, the, and it's really important, that last part, too. Because what you're, when you, as the person creating the story, it gives you that distance of not looking at it as yourself. Not why I think this is interesting, but here's why everyone should be interested in this. Because that's that universalizing piece. I didn't understand this until the working group helped me get clear. The focus sentence is a baby narrative arc. XY story formula will tell you the hook. Why will you listen? What's odd or unusual or surprising about the situation or events of the story? The Soren encapsulates the major chronological points of the story and demands that the events in question be f***ing unbelievable. MK found that the simple process of laying out the events in order where they depend on one another was key to her breakthrough. I think it had to do with pulling out what are the essential pieces of the story and putting them in order. The then is very powerful because it makes you put it in order. A story in its purest form is somebody saying, this happened and that led to this next thing and that led to this next thing and that led to this next thing, like one thing following another. And the power of the anecdote is is so great that no matter how, in a way, like no matter how boring the material is, if it's in a story form where, where there's an anecdote happening, it has a momentum in and of itself. That's Ira Glass from a current TV interview. Chronological sequence, possibly the most essential narrative form. Like, okay, there's, you know, if you try to think of like the most boring possible story, okay, there's a guy and, uh, and he wakes up and, um, and he's lying there in bed and the house is very, very quiet, just unearthly quiet. And so he sits up, and he puts his feet on the floor, and he walks to the door of his bedroom. And again, just very, very quiet. Walks down the stairs, looks around, just unusually quiet. Now, like, this is the most, like, what I'm telling you is the most boring possible fact pattern, and yet there's suspense in it. It feels like something's going to happen. And the reason why is because literally it's a sequence of events, like this guy is doing this thing, he's moving from space to space. You can feel through its form that when you have one thing leading to the next, leading to the next, you can feel inherently 
that you're on a train that has a destination. That's all good, and it's all true, but think about it for a minute. This series of events tells us we're on a train to a destination, and you're the conductor. You'd better be taking us someplace worthwhile. So the Soren does one other thing. It sets up the framing of the story. Why is this a story that the whole world, or at least a very large slice of it, should care to read or listen to or watch? Chapter 3. This is that thing we all do. The word framing can be a bit vague or confusing. I'm not talking about framing a picture, and I'm not talking about a literary framing device. Framing is about connecting the very specific ideas and events in a story to something larger. It's about telling the world why your work is worth listening to, finding the core meaning, and connecting it to something universal. Chronology, one thing, then another thing, and another thing creates suspense, creates questions, like what's going to happen next. Mm. And then framing is going to tell you why you're listening to this. So the guy who goes downstairs and is weirdly quiet and eats breakfast, you better have a frame of why you're listening to this thing. Because the people get to the end and they're like, you, Mm. you know. How many times does that happen where you you have a story that's like this and then this and then this and then this and you're like, oh my God, I have to know. And then this. And you're like, that's it. Like, and why did I just totally waste... 30 seconds of my time. Mm-hmm. And so would you say that that's a, qu- a question of poor framing? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. What are the stakes? Like, what's important about this thing? And they don't help, help you understand those stakes in any way. They don't give you a frame for the story. Mm-hmm. They've failed. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be, like, hitting you over the head. Like, and the reason this is important is blah, blah, blah. You can do that in some contexts. But that may not be necessary. But if you don't set it up properly, if you don't know it and you don't like build it into the story, even very interesting sets of events will leave you feeling flat because you're like, Wait, why did I just pay attention to that? So you can't expect people to like assume that your story is going to be interesting. Yeah, why should they? There's a zillion things out there to listen to and watch and pay attention to. Yeah, of course. I've been reaching for a way to incorporate framing into all the best parts of the various focusing XY formula thingies. And the ideal might really be a mashup of all three, plus a little dash of Jessica. Let's call it a story Mad Lib. First, a bit of focus sentence. Someone is motivated to do this thing he's doing because of this. But then this happens, so he has to do this. Then, some chronology and key turning points. And therefore, this, which leads to this. And finally, you won't believe it, but this. And finally, a frame. Tell us why this is all so bloody important. And the reason this matters to everyone walking the face of the earth is this. Does that, does that mean, like, a metaphor? Like, elves are a metaphor for racism? Exactly. Hannah Jaffe-Walt, who we also heard from at the top of the show, thought the Soren was a bit too over the top. But then she also works in a very similar way. I think there is like a slight tweak to that sometimes, which is like, and that is that thing that we all do. Like, it's a smaller way of saying this can be universal, not because of you can't 
believe it, it's huge and you never thought about it before, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, uh, it's interesting to you because it's a relatable thing that you do that has happened in your life. You look for the frame up front before you start working. That's the why in your XY story formula. That's the this is why it matters to every person walking the face of the earth in your Soren. That's the this is the thing we all do in Hannah's approach. But the frame doesn't always come clear up front or it may change. And that's okay. You build your idea for framing in your structure and then you often forget it when you're writing and you need to be reminded in the edit of what's important. You lose it and you have to find it again. And so I often have a moment like a third of the way into writing where I'm like, where's the thing going to be where I'm sort of stepping back? And I think that the thoughts that I'm usually having are, um, oh, this is like that thing that everybody experiences, or this is interesting because X. And sometimes it's really explicit. I don't love writing in a way that's like, you're interested in this because of X. I'm sure that if you broke down each part, there is a section a third or two thirds of the way through that is like a paragraph saying, um, here's why this is interesting. Framing is at the core of choosing the right stories to work on. Sean Cole has learned this the hard way. Yes, I, I feel, I hope that I am better at identifying what is actually a story now than I used to be. Like, sometimes I'd just be like, here's this shiny thing, and I want to do something about it. And like, Even if he knew it wasn't really a great story, where he had no frame I, for I it. Would, I would just do, do it. You know, like, then one day, he stumbled like, almost literally on a fence in Lower Manhattan that had the poetry of Walt Whitman and Frank O'Hara built into it. And Sean is a poet as well as an audio producer. And Whitman and O'Hara are his personal heroes. Now that I think of it, when I first went down there with Melissa, that first time, I, we were so floored. I went around talking about that fence for like a month to everybody, including my mom. And I was so excited. I was like, you would not believe what Melissa and I found out by the wharves. And she goes, you should do a story about that. And I said, for who? That's ridiculous. It's not everything is a story, Mom. You know? <laughs> like, nobody doesn't want it. That's a fence. I mean, it's great. I think it's great. But This I'm, is know, Sean failing to pay attention like, to his oh, attention. I, I, anything you go around talking just, about for a month, there is a story you know, in that. So, with the fence, like, I mean, the fence could have just been a fence and had nothing. What if there was nobody to talk to? But, like, what if the people who made it weren't around anymore? Right. Um, uh... Who would I have talked to? What would I have said? I might have talked to a couple poets and a couple architects, but it would have been just like kind of a bunch of ideas, and there wouldn't have really been a story. Right. There's luck required. Many of the main players in this case were alive and findable. But at a more basic level, what is this story about? But that changes if you put this story into the frame of a show that's about the built world and what it says about us as humans. And he knew a guy with a show like that. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. For 99% Invisible, I, it's like, I mean, you have, to, you, you have to present it in terms of stories, you know, even if it's a big idea. That's the sound of me furiously taking notes, by the way. The secret is to find something that is sort of a mundane fact that somebody will, it's the thing that somebody will remember when it's all over with. And, and that, that takeaway fact is the thing I kind of look for, the thing that sort of sparks my imagination. I, I don't want things that are beautiful and amazing. That's arts reporting that of me tell, talking to you about something that's already cool. I, I, I want to make something boring cool. <laughs> 
And, and, and if I can find that, then, then that's the, that's the takeaway fact. So you, you almost have like a contradiction here. It breaks the barrier. Okay. Poetry breaks the barrier. The idea that it doesn't stop you. It begins something. Yeah. So I mean, I'm, I'm making that up as I go, as I go. Yeah. That's 99% Invisible, episode number 59. Some other sign that people do not totally regret life. And by the way, that moment, my favorite moment in that show is when I say there's a, I bet there's a date on it. Uh-huh. And Melissa goes, really? It's like I actually thought, oh, you know what? And then she's, and then we find it and she is like, we are such assholes. <laughs> like we're sitting around like, who did this and when? <laughs> How would we ever know? <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, the <laughs> <f-ing> plaque. <laughs> At Roman's rule, always read. Always the read the plaque. He made. He made me put. There are so yeah, many I ways to think about structuring stories, and I was lucky enough to get a chance to talk about a few more with Jonathan Mitchell of the show The Truth. Unlike the nonfiction shows I talked about in my book Out on the Wire, The Truth is one of a few very innovative shows featuring fictional stories. And the truth's take on radio drama incorporates up-to-the-minute narrative and soundscapes into oft-unsettling one-shot stories. We discussed his storytelling philosophy and writing process. And the clips you'll hear come from two stories, Sylvia's Blood and Naughty or Nice. We've got links to both those episodes on the show page. My name's Jonathan Mitchell, and I produce The Truth. The Truth. Oh, are you okay? Yeah. The idea is to have a show where uh, we can experiment around with how to make fiction in audio. I always felt like it was a really fertile area uh, that you could do a lot with that wasn't really getting explored very much. And that radio is such a great medium for storytelling that that should include fiction storytelling too. I mean, it's just, there's, it's just wide open. It's a huge field. It helps to have an identity for a show. You know, it, um, you have to kind of, plant your flag somewhere and um, just planting my flag in fiction I don't think was specific enough and so we started um, making conscious effort to make um, uh, to make speculative fiction stories uh, so there's something something that couldn't exist and that the characters react to in a really realistic way and you have to draw blood for this they need my blood they need your blood they're like attracted to it they're attracted who, who are to they? me they're angels Angels, like God's angels from the Bible? I mean, kind of, maybe. Stories um, want some kind of conflict, and I feel like um, horror and science fiction genres um, offer an opportunity to express conflict through sound a little bit more, you know? Like, you can you can do a lot with music and, um, like, drones and ambiances and blurring the line between sound effects in music right there and she's surrounded by light and she's reaching out to me so in my mind the uh like a story is the process of transformation so you're starting at one state and you're ending at another it's sort of like a one metaphor like a, a visual metaphor i like to think of is a is a butterfly so you have um, a caterpillar is act one, and then a cocoon is act two, and then a butterfly is act three. And, and that's basically the arc of a story. 
um, is, is something transforming from one thing to another. Usually it's, it's, it's the protagonist. The protagonist changes. And so um, basically the opening moments of the story are establishing the world as normal, the caterpillar world for the protagonist, and then making the thing happen. It forces the protagonist to take some action that they wouldn't have normal in, in their normal life. You know, there's two questions I ask, like, what is this about? And then who's the protagonist and how does the protagonist change? And, um, and those two things are connected. Like how the protagonist changes is, is, should express the theme. And if you're having trouble figuring out who the protagonist is and how they change, look at your theme and think, what, well, what, what person is at the center of this and, and will have the most um, need to take action. I took off to find help. Could I go to the police? I mean, what are they going to do? Could I call a priest? Maybe a hospital. What if I'm hallucinating? It's a process of transformation. And so um, something has to change. And so what's changing? Who's changing? And um, what does that imply about where the story starts and where it ends? I did want to ask you about Naughty or Nice because, I mean, did you get an assignment from All Things Considered? Or did you go to them with the story? Or how did you... Yeah, they wanted a Christmas story. That was Mm -hmm. the assignment. Um, Write a Christmas story that will, like, that's happy. (laughs) Needs to have a happy ending. Uh, (laughs) Which must be tough for you. Yeah, right. Like, what? Happy ending? (laughs) Who do you think you're talking to over here? This one who I was watching earlier today decided to feed all of his Ritalin to his Fox Terrier. And when the dog started flipping out, his mom had to take him over to the veterinarian's office. The kid tore all the way um, Probably this is bedroom. very common, um, is that I just, you know, start making a, a list of ideas of potential things that we could do. And I was actually talking to a screenwriter named Danny Rubin, who, um, who wrote Groundhog Day, um, about working on this because we, we've been, we're working on another story at the time. And, um, he had this idea of a, the naughty or nice list. Mm-hmm. F is food. Right, food. Food related. Okay. So let's go ahead and click naughty. To me, it, it um, suggested a story that was a metaphor for surveillance and, um, and that it, it, it sort of brought up all these questions of like, well, how does this list get made? What kind of implications does it have for how the world works? Uh, and, um, you know, who said why, why why do we why are we okay with santa like watching our children like this <laughs> it just seemed very 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 strange to me that suggested in an inciting incident where like an elf is tasked with doing this and he's not comfortable with it and that that was a good um you know inciting incident well, here's a, do they do the kids actually know we're watching them all the time? Oh yeah, right? of course it's in the song, right? Yeah. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. Yeah. It's right there. Yeah, I just wonder what if we gave the parents more input? They're with these kids all the time. Where do you go between this moment when you have the basic idea and when you start actually scripting the thing? Um, what I like to do is I have a a document that's just ideas, just story ideas. And um, I'll get those ideas usually by um, doing a lot of research. So in this case, I, I was sort of hooked on this uh, surveillance theme. And so I started reading a lot about Edward Snowden, all kinds of that stuff, 
just just um and also like santa claus mythology and you know i, I also like to go and and watch movies that have very similar themes so you sort of start re- collecting these ideas and um before we have our weekly writers meeting and so you know i bring these ideas into that and then we start bouncing them around even more and we just start talking and i I record them i record our writers meetings and so um so that that makes so no one has to take notes and also nothing gets lost in translation so that i go back and i listen to the i listen to the brainstorm and i'll i'll take notes on the brainstorm and um and one of the things that came out of that was this cool lobbyist um, idea. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming by. Uh, remember, the magic number is 2,000 tons. And have a Merry Christmas. If this works out, we'll all have a Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Uh, excuse me, Santa? Who is that with Santa? And so you sort of start building this, these things, and, um, and I think the structure actually really popped into place when I thought, oh, well, what if what if he um he goes to see santa claus and then as a result of going to see santa claus he gets fired he gets demoted to the factory and then once he gets what can he you know like how do you get yourself out of that i i felt like he he needs to want to go see santa and so the question is the question there is like well where does he how does he get to santa um what how can we make this as fun as possible and I thought, well, the f- most fun way to actually get to go see Santa is to go sit on his lap. Next child. Uh, yeah, that's me. Sp- <laughs> Spark? Is that you? No, uh, Spark no. Spark what are you doing dressed like that? Shh, please, just let me through. Because, you know, San- I like the idea that Santa's, like, completely shut off. Like, you can't see him. He's a CEO. He's a high-powered CEO. He's got, you know, layers of, of secretaries. And then, um, but but children can go see Santa just by standing in line, going to the you know department no, store. No, we got an empty Santa lap here. Come on. Thank you. Come on up here. You've been a nice little elf all year long. I've tried to be good. I mean, I also brought Seth in at a certain point. Seth Lund, who who's uh, This American Life, and he was helping me write it too. Um, and he had like he had the idea that maybe Santa gives him what he wants, and and then um, I wasn't quite sure how to get him fired, uh, and what how the Santa conversation should go, and Seth's idea was well he should get what he wants from Santa, but then he gets fired, so there's like a reversal, uh, and that was that was really great that really made it work, um, and so so what once we had that sort of event to turn the story on. Then everything else came became a question of, well, you know, how do we make this make sense, land most effectively, and um, get us there in as few steps as possible? But, okay, so there's this, this document, and it looks kind of like an outline. All the ideas are in order. It sort of starts to grow, <laughs> grow dialogue, <laughs> you know? At a certain mm-hmm. point, the outline kind of... Uh, accumulates moss or whatever and so it become before you know it you sort of have a scene and then you're working on the scene and um for this one we it was very it, we didn't ever have like a final script of it that we just went and then executed it was more like well we're recording this scene tomorrow and we're recording these scenes on friday so 
we just need to know what we're doing for this scene. We know what, what place it has in the whole story, but the specifics of how that happens. Let's let's try to figure that out. And so we'd write that scene out, and then we'd bring the actors in. And, and what I like to do is um, uh, have actors do the scene, like write it out for the actors, have them do that, and then and then just like let them reinterpret the scene once they know the beats and where it's going and what it's about. Have them reinterpret it however they want, and do lots of takes of that, and then just like piece the scene out to get out of the the moments that really work for the story. It doesn't matter if the actors give me something I can't use as long as they give me the thing that I I need <laughs> in the end. I saw Santa meet with a coal lobbyist. Well, Spark, that's his job. Do you do you know how much cheaper a piece of coal is than a toy? Think about it. It's just the economics of Christmas. Santa Claus is coming to town. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming. Now for this week's challenge. This episode is a flight check. It's getting all your duckies in a row. And I'm going to come right out here and say that this stage of preparation may feel artificially extended, especially for nonfiction writers, because really what we're doing here tails right into pre-interview prep and research. But we got to cut it off somewhere. So this week, I want you to do a story Mad Lib, and I'll post the story Mad Lib form on the show page. This is pretty similar to a narrative arc and will push you towards thinking that way from a different starting point. Someone is motivated to do this thing he's doing because of this. But then this happens, so he has to do this. And therefore, this, which leads to this. And finally, you won't believe it, but this. And the reason this matters to everyone walking the face of the earth is this. And that last bit is important. You want to check yourself now. Are you making a story that's just weird or exotic, or does it have something larger to say back to the world? If that's what you're aiming for, you need a frame. Your understanding of the frame will evolve as you work, but stepping back and thinking about it explicitly is incredibly valuable in making choices about how to move forward. Remember, as you lay out the chronology, to focus on conflicts, turning points, and moments where there's a dilemma. And if you're missing hunks in the middle, that's okay. Just get as far as you can. If you're making a character-centered work, you additionally want to make sure you're clear on two things. What is the spark? And then define the question that it poses for the protagonist that the ending will need to answer. If you're working in nonfiction, you may not know the answer before you interview, but you can certainly identify the options. I'd also note that talking about this out loud with someone is bracing and clarifying. I talked about the frame for this episode multiple times with both Ben and Matt and could not have finished it without that. Talk it out with somebody. I'll have show notes on this episode, including the narrative arc chart from Drawing Words and Writing Pictures, links to all the stories we talked about, and the story Mad Lib on my site at jessicaable.com slash podcast. Out on the Wire stems from my new graphic nonfiction book about how the best producers on the radio and in podcasts make their incredible stories. Get your copy of Out on the Wire, the storytelling secrets of the new masters of radio. Go to jessicaable.com slash out on the wire. You can also get show notes emailed to you if you're on the newsletter. If you love Out on the Wire and want to support the show, check out the Out on the Wire bonus pack. In it, you get full music downloads from the show and complete versions of our new interviews. 
including Stephanie Fu, Jonathan Mitchell, Kazu Kibuishi, Robert Smith, and more. It's a great way to spend some time with our awesome guests and support the show at the same time. It's only $10, or more if you're feeling generous, for over eight hours of bonus content. Find out more at jessicaable.com slash podcast. You can find me on Twitter at jccable, and Benjamin is at Benjamin Frisch. Out on the Wire is produced by Benjamin Frisch with music contributed by Matt Madden. Made with the support of La Maison des Auteurs Angoulême. And thanks to our voice actors in this episode, Georgia Maras and Grace Wilson. We'll see you in a week with Benjamin Frisch and Matt Madden for a discussion of some of your work from the Out on the Wire working group on our workshop episode. And we'll see you in a few weeks with episode five. You're not lucky. You're just good. Like, how can I bring my story to the next level? Like, I want to be J.R.R. Tolkien. I want to be George R. R. Martin. Oh, my gosh. Do they both have double R's in the middle? That's what you have to do. (laughs) Benjamin R.R. Frisch. (laughs) That's the answer. That's the secret. (laughs) 